This program is brought to you by Pussy Magnets. Welcome, welcome, my lovely lumps. Or should I say lovely labs? I'm so thrilled to have you here in the Labia Lounge to yarn about all things sexuality, womanhood, holistic health, and everything in between. Your legs. Ah, uh, can never help myself. Anyway, we're going to have vag loads of real chats with real people about real shit. So buckle up, you're about to receive the sex ed that you never had and have a bloody good laugh while you're at it. Before we get stuck in, I'd like to respectfully acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm recording this, the Manang people. It's an absolute privilege to be living and creating dope podcast content on Noongar country and I pay respect to their elders past, present and emerging. Now, if you're ready, let's flap and do this. <laughs> oh God, is there such thing as too many vagina jokes in the one intro? <laughs> Whatever, I'm leaving it in. It's my podcast. Don't panic, you're not broken. Your sex education was a piece of shit. Get your flaps out and pull the couch. It's the Labia Lounge. Hello, my labial legends. How's it hanging today? I've got Rainier Wild on today with me to chat about shadow work and authentic relating. And I'm hoping that we'll have time to cover the intersection of the two and how shadow work can be utilized in relationship to create deeper intimacy and uh, plumb the depths of self-awareness and self-realization. So anyway, We're going to be covering some pretty big stuff, Um, at least that's my intention, and I just thought what better guest to delve into these waters with me than this guy. So to give you the lowdown on Rainia, before we get stuck in, let me just like lay down his bio for you. So he's an experienced teacher, writer, and speaker. Rainia has embraced life for all that it is. He's celebrated its highs and learned from its lows. He's managed a Fortune 5. 500 company and built businesses, Madflex. Um, he has also elegantly blown them up, burned them down, and started over from scratch. He holds a master's degree in psychology and has spent countless hours working with men and women navigating in navigating the human soul. Through the various positions he's held, he's discovered that life must be claimed to hold any worth. And his work is to inspire others to live fully and deeply in the here and now. Oh, welcome, my dear. I'm so glad we finally got here. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here, Freya. Yeah, it's really awesome. (laughs) We finally did it. We did it. (laughs) Through hell and high waters, we've had like extreme weather events and um, losing voices. (laughs) I know. My gosh. Well, this must be this must be the universe bending us towards this moment because we have traversed galaxies to get here. <laughs> Poetic as always. Uh, so, I would love to hear your thoughts on a number of things that I know that you, in particular, from following you for a while, have like very deep, very valuable insights on. Um, and I want to focus this episode on, on relationships in particular and doing the work within relationship. But first, I'd love to dip into shadow work because this has become such a popular buzzword of late in the theory circles and the conscious communities. Um, and so like I, I find so many people have a really different idea of what shadow work actually means and 
you know, I haven't actually heard too many people describe it clearly uh, without the vague, nebulous language that I sometimes find so frustrating, you know, in in certain corners of that new agey sort of spiritual scene. Um, So, to get down to brass tacks and just give listeners a very tangible understanding of what people are referring to when they speak of the shadow side, that would be amazing. Um, I'd love to just hear your take, how you explain it to clients, you know, like what, what the shadow is, and then maybe we can chat about how we can work with these parts of ourselves. Yeah, oh, that's a great question. You know, I think that uh, rightly understood, the shadow is not separate from ourself. The shadow really is ourself. And it's particularly the aspects of self that were cut away, that were um, severed, or at least attempted to be severed from, mm-hmm. very early on in an attempt to belong. We all make bids for relationship very early on to stay in relationship, to stay in connection. Human beings are so supremely concerned with staying on the island, so to speak. And we have been for for a number of of years. Uh, Our supreme concern as a species is belonging. We're pack animals. Mm. And in order to stay in relationship with one another – we often feel and sometimes very rightly feel that we have to hide or minimize pieces of ourself to be in connection. Those aspects, they don't go away. They don't actually dissipate into the ether like we imagine they will when we're six years old. We think that our, that our sense of humor or that our anger or that our lust will simply go away. It doesn't gets cut away to the editing floor where it joins the great mass of other things lying there. And much later, the shadow working janitor comes out and begins to stitch together these things into a, a seamless reel of shadows that, that later we will project along the wall of our future. I think a good analogy for it is this, that as we develop our ego persona, as we develop our personality in the world, that's kind of like a skyscraper going endlessly up. If you think about it, 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 it's the part that everyone sees. And most of us are taught as little kids to, to erect a very beautiful uh, rendition of self. Nobody's half-assing it. Like we're all trying to do the very best that we can. Even those of us who say we give fuck all. Actually, the truth of it, even that's a kind of character we're creating, right? And so whether we're a rebel or whether we're a Disney princess, it doesn't matter much. We've created a certain kind of persona. And as high as that ego persona skyscraper is, our, shall we say, basement of shadows goes equally long in the opposite direction. All the things we had to cut away down in the opposite direction. And we do our best to hide them, to minimize them, to, to, to deal with them, but they're still there. So when people talk about shadow work, what they're really talking about are um, turning on the basement lights. When I was a kid, my parents had this house that had a very large, musty basement. And I remember being like four or five years old, a real little guy. And I would tiptoe down those stairs. And every stair I would tiptoe down, I would get more and more frightened. 
and the lights were off and it was very scary. And I would see the bottom of the stairwell and I would see these big shadows that were terrifying. And as I would take another step down, I would see another shadow and it was alarming. And, and then I would scamper away. But here's the thing. <laughs> if you just turned on the light, you'd see that those big terrifying shadows were just boxes of odds and ends or Aunt Gladys's old weird collection of dolls that, that uh, while not horrifying, were perhaps silly. <laughs> and so shadow work is like going into the basement, turning on the lights, seeing the reality, which isn't actually all that exotic or esoteric, seeing the reality of what's there. And making a choice whether you want to bring that up into the front room and integrate that into your life or bid it adieu and sell it at the rummage sale. So that's <laughs> shadow work. Wow. That's, yeah, exactly what I asked for. A very tangible explanation. It's really, I've, I've had so many people ask me, but what even is it? Like what actually is shadow work? So this is, this is exactly what I, what I wanted to get at because yeah, my understanding is similar. It's, it's the parts of ourselves that because culturally or societally we feel as though if people know about them, we won't be able to belong or we'll be judged or shamed or ostracized, we reject them in ourselves. And so we tuck them down deep in the basement or we uh, we sort of sever ourselves from them. And yeah, like you said, they don't go away. So how do we shine the light on them? How do we integrate them? Is it about acceptance? Is it about, um, I mean, this is a huge question, so sorry about that. But yeah, like, can we chat a little bit about um, how to recognize and reflect on our own shadow? Because if it's something that like we've actively denied or rejected or hidden about ourselves, it's probably going to take a fair bit of excavating to uncover and and courage to actually look at that and know what to do with it when we have shone the light on it, right? Absolutely. Well, a lot of people have a good sense of what their shadow is. They might go along and say, oh, it's my alcoholism or, oh, it's my mm -hmm. anger or, oh, it's, it's my my sex or whatever that is. And so, you know, what's happening for them? Well, probably patterns. Patterns have been pointed out over time. Again, if we keep on with our analogy here, you know, I, I think a really great, um, whenever you see twins in movies or mythology or anything like that, you're dealing with the shadow and the ego from a structural level. And so I think of Alexander Dumas, uh, the man in the iron mask story. And The Man in the Iron Mask, which I think Leonardo DiCaprio starred in as a movie, uh, which it's a fine movie, but I, I would read the book. Um, <laughs> but it deals with these twin sons who are born as the heir to the French throne. And the advisors to the king know that this will cause a, 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 a dynasty um, crisis. And so they take one of the, the boys and they put him in the dungeon. And they enshrine the other as the king. And so one boy grows dark behind a mask in a dungeon. And the king, meanwhile, is well-groomed and well-to-do. And occasionally, the man in the iron and the mask will break free. And he'll come out. And guess what happens to him when he breaks free? Well, he gets put back into the dungeon, locked behind more doors, more guards are posted. And I would just pause here to say a lot of us relate to our shadows that way. We know what's going on. It's like we remember being eight years old, shaking the stairs and saying, I hate you, mom. I hate you, dad. And 
And mom or dad looks at us and says, hey, Billy, or hey, Susie, never do that again. And so what do we do? Well, we try our best to cut away our anger. We really try pretty hard. And then later we're 15 years old and a teacher gives us an F on a test and we say, God damn it, I hate this class. And the teacher looks at us and says, Billy, never do that. again." And so then we learn again. And so we do better, better suppressing it. But guess what happens? We put that man in the iron mask, in the basement, in the dungeon. Years go by and it gets bigger. Anything that we resist persists. And it actually gets bigger because we, we aren't listening to it. We aren't listening to what it's saying. So I think that a lot of people really do know what's down there in the basement. It's not disobvious. But then there's another level. So everything I just described is what I would call suppression. It's the attempt mm-hmm. to cut away or deny what's down there. But then there's another level to the shadow, which are the things we don't know we don't know, which exists in the realm of repression. So let's just imagine that little Billy or little Susie had gotten yelled at by dad, mom, never be angry like that again. And they listened and they listened so well and were so affected that they actually cut off their anger. And now they go through life. Billy is a very mild mannered accountant. He just, he talks like this and he's real even. He's just real nice. Or Susie's just the sweetest girl in the world. Oh my goodness. Right. And so you have these very gentle, wonderful people, never heard a fly. But you know what? They suddenly hear about a rageaholic or they get cut off in the middle of the road by someone who flips them off angrily and they can't believe that person. How could that person do that? For a lot of people, you will notice your shadow not because you know that thing that's haunting you, but because you notice other people and they really piss you off. So a really great question, a a great introductory question to knowing your shadow is what pisses you off in others? That will usually start to get you to reality. So first, what's your pattern? And if you're not, if you're not able to turn up a pattern, then I next go to that great question. What pisses you off on others? Now that is usually a good enough start. And then we're off to the races. <laughs> and that sort of segues into, uh, I guess, being in relationship and using one another as a mirror and, and learning about our own shadow through being in relationship. But before we get there, I'd love to know, um, is there like a is there kind of a one size fits all approach to tackling a shadow or is it going to be very different depending on what the nature of the shadow is or the kind of person you know like is it always about embracing and welcoming it and then finding a way to somehow integrate it in a in a sustainable way that doesn't hurt anyone or ourselves or like is there you know like what's the first so we've we've recognized it and then what's the first step to actually working with it. Yeah. So I would actually articulate that our shadow is the most um, raw and unprocessed part of ourself. And in fact, almost everything that we call ourself is highly overprocessed, overcurated, overdeveloped. In the United States, and I don't know if you have this where you live, we have this meat product called Spam. 
Are, are you familiar with spam? Yeah. Yeah, I've never eaten it, but I've seen cans of it. <laughs> well, I think you're right. I think you're on the I think you're on the winning path here by not eating it. It calls itself a meat product. Now, I've eaten it many times and I'll have to admit and I'll have to live with those poor choices. But what I'll say about this is whatever it is, it is not recognizable what animal this came from, nor where on this animal, nor when. It is a meat product. It is highly processed, highly packaged, and by the time it gets to us, is unrecognizable. It's brought to us for our consumption. Most of our personalities are so overprocessed, so overworked, so overcurated that they are almost unrecognizable from where they began. It is the difference between a live wild animal and spam. But our shadow. Our shadow are the parts that got cut away in order to bring us that little can of spam. They're still raw. They're still unfiltered. So, so much of shadow work, rightly understood, isn't about cutting away more, which is exactly what the ego would want us to do, but rather integrating those pieces, integrating those parts and asking a really good question, which is, why doesn't the ego want you to have access to this? Why doesn't this highly curated, highly processed, machine-like part of your identity want you to have access to this part of you? I haven't met too many people who had something in their basement of shadows that wasn't worthy of integrating in some way, in some form. It usually just has to do with um, sprucing it up, developing it working on it and giving it the attention and the care it needs. Hmm. So if, if we use anger as an example, you know, there's, there's a bit of value to, I mean, it's, it's not untrue that if you were to have angry outbursts and just act from that place of anger all the time, you might be ostracized and you wouldn't be able to make friends easily and your life might be harder. So how do we then honor it and still integrate it as part of us without doing damage to, you know, our friendships or our relationships or our social standing? Like I totally agree. Like we are curating our personalities and ourselves, everything about ourselves, our appearance, you know, it's, it's overly curated and, I'm not about that, um, but I do think there's like an element of survival, um, and like you said, we really want to belong. Um, and so, how would you like if, if we if we're talking about anger? How would you suggest still being able to access that? Like, is it about you know when we're feeling that anger, going to a separate room, smashing a pillow? You know, I used to have a punching bag that hung from. Um, the decking outside my my room when I was a teenager and I would just go out and lay into it and I would really tap into my anger but it would be in a way that didn't harm anyone is that like a healthy way to integrate it to still access it and honor it but just not direct it at someone or like what are some sustainable ways of integrating shadow yeah I think first of all you're you're really highlighting something which is that our modern civilizations, our modern societies aren't terribly equipped to handle our human experience. Mm. We live in glass houses surrounded by well orchestrated machines. The least little irregular movement will send things shattering. Mm. 
And so we're really told and taught to keep in place, to, to keep our seats, to sit down, to raise your hand, to be very polite. Mm-hmm. So you're right. Uh, I think that honestly, a lot of things get disturbed by us being human. <laughs> so yeah. unfortunately, we suppress and repress all the more, which tends to have a bad um, result on our mental health, on our vitality, mm. on our relationships. We expend a tremendous amount of energy keeping these things down. But let's use anger. Let's let's look at that. So every human experience has an adaptive function. All of our emotions have a reason why we as humans developed them. Like none of them are accidents. I won't deal with shame here, but even shame, which is, you know, almost universally poo-pooed post Brene Brown as a, as an emotion is, uh, has a tremendous and adaptive function. It's such a useful emotion and was really from, from its earliest innovation. It's why we maintained it as a species. It doesn't fit terribly well today, but it actually did have a function and does have a function. Rightly understood. Well, anger is the same way. So anger is an emotion that we experience when a goal is being blocked or thwarted. It is an emotion that literally helps push us or motivate us to well up, rise up and cross the finish line and charge through the goal or obstacle. Now think about this. This is a tremendously beneficial emotion from a, a, a historic sense, if you look at the long arc of 350,000 years of human history, God, we have really benefited from anger. There was a goal blocking us. We got angry. We charged over the finish line. I remember I was working with an adolescent once who I explained this principle to him. And I said, well, when do you get angry? And he said, I get angry when I'm out there on the soccer field. I said, well, when? And he said, well, literally when the goal was blocked. And I said, well, what's it make you want to do? And he said, try harder. It makes me want to try harder. That rightly understood as anger. So someone cut off from their anger often will feel the external result being they can't access the grit or the stamina or the resilience to do hard things. They're cut off from their anger. So when they're, they come across a challenge or when their goal is blocked, all they can do is kind of crumple and wilt like a tender flower. But as Friedrich Nietzsche said, we're not tender flowers. We're beasts of burden. We were meant to push through things. We're tremendously resilient species and we've lost access to our resilience because we've lost access to our anger. But put us in connection to our anger once more. Allow us to feel that emotion. And like any emotion, well, how do we, what do we do with it? Well, first of all, we feel it. (laughs) We feel it. We feel it in our body. We feel it in, in the physiological experience of our usness. We allow ourselves to feel that sensation distributed from head to toe. We don't try to block it. We don't shame ourselves mm-hmm. for it. We notice it. And then we notice any thoughts going around with it. We notice the thoughts. And then we, we question those thoughts. We say, well, is that true? <laughs> is that actually true? Can I know that? And then we ask a further question. We say, well, what's this emotion? Now we, we call it anger. What's this emotion of anger motivating me to do? Oh, it's motivating me to really punch that guy in the face. Huh. Then we ask a really important question. Is it effective? Would that really help things? 
Does that get me closer to the actual goal that I have? Hmm. Well, maybe. So if it is, proceed mindfully, but probably not in this case. So <laughs> in which case, don't do the thing that you were motivated to do. So I, you might pause me here and say, well, isn't that cutting away the emotion? Nope, not at all, because you felt it. You felt it mm. fully. You allowed yourself to feel the emotion. And instead of acting on the motivation, you asked, is this effective towards my goals? So it's not repression mm. or suppression at all. It's actually fully being with the emotion. That's mm. how you integrate. Hey, babe towns. So sorry to interrupt, but I simply had to pop my head into the lounge here and mention another virtual lounge that you've got to get around. It's the Labia Lounge Facebook group that I've created for listeners of the potty to mingle in. And there you'll find extra bits and bobs like freebies or discounts for offerings from guests who've been interviewed on the podcast, inspiring and thought-provoking conversations, and support from a community of labial legends. I also have an account on the fab new app Sunroom, which is a platform created by women for women and non-binary folk, and where there's no shadow banning or censorship of sex-positive content unlike with the other platforms that I'm on. So you can hit up my sunroom for extra content and real and raw life updates because I'll be sharing on there from now on all of the stuff that I can't post anywhere else. My vision for both of these is that they become really supportive, educational, and hilarious resources for you to have more access to me and a safe space to ask questions that you can't ask anywhere else. So head over to the links in the show notes and I'll hopefully see you in there. And now back to the episode. Mm, yeah. So what I'm hearing is like rather than reacting, we're actually able to respond um, mindfully, which doesn't actually suppress or cut us off from the emotion because we've, we've allowed ourselves to feel it without shaming ourselves or feeling as though, you know, we're rotten, rotten egg for feeling those negative emotions that, you know, have all of this, all of, all these connotations. And, you know, we've, mm. we've sort of learned to believe aren't okay. Um, and like, that's what I love about kids so much is like they are still wild animals. They're raw. They're unfiltered. They're just allowing themselves to feel their emotions and they're expressing the shit out of them. And maybe what, you know, what's happening, you know, I'm thinking, cause I'm always thinking about things through the lens of like, all right, how do I, how do I make sure I don't pass all of, all of this shit onto my yeah. kids, all the stuff that I'm currently working through. How do I do a better job? You know, um, when I'm a parent and, and I think I love, I love it when I see parents, cause I used to work in childcare as well. And I'd see parents like, you know, their kids would be having an absolute hissy fit and they, they wouldn't be like, stop that, you know, stop expressing yourself. They'd be like, yeah, I see that you're really angry. That's so understandable. You know, they'd acknowledge it and, um, I guess, validate those feelings and say, that's okay. That's totally, you, you should feel angry. That's so fine. Um, and so what we're able to do as adults is, is that kids can't do, um, is, you know, just pause, <laughs> feel the emotion, allow it, not feel shit about it, and then decide what we're going to do. And anger's, yeah, anger's an interesting one because it's probably for me the most reactionary one where I do, I do want to punch someone and I do want to lash out. Um, and probably that's because I'm, yeah, maybe that's partly because I'm, 
I'm feeling it, but I'm also then feeling the double hurt of shaming myself for feeling it, you know? Yeah, that's right. Mm. That's right. Especially if we were taught when we were very young that we shouldn't have this experience. Uh, I like how you said that. It's the double part, right? You know, Mm. Friedrich Nietzsche had this, I quoted him a few minutes ago, but he had this wonderful um, kind of mental experiment. And I think that's what it was for him. Sometimes people call it a, a, a philosophy of his. I don't think it was a philosophy, but eternal recurrence. I don't think he had a well-developed philosophy around this, but if you read it in some of his fragments, you can find that he was playing with this idea. And what this idea of eternal recurrence is a very simple kind of mental framework. And it, it goes like this. What would happen if you get to the end of your life and you had to repeat every moment of this life exactly as it happened? Well, I get it. That sounds like reincarnation or Groundhog's Day, except no, he means down to the moment. So you and I have this conversation again with the exact same emotions and the exact same inflections as we experienced it today. So what he asked was, how would your decisions change, your next steps change, if you knew that you had to repeat them infinitely forever? So I like this thought experiment because let's just say that you make a mistake. Let's say that you make a mistake, a tremendous mistake. Maybe I, maybe I yell at my partner and it's really unjust. And I yell. I, you know, It just comes out of nowhere, comes out of the pit. And I yell at them. Well, that's a mistake. Now, I'm going to have to repeat that for an infinite number of times, eternally recurring. <laughs> okay, so that's that's the door A. Now, what the real genius of this mental kind of construct is to say, now what? Because you're already repeating this real shitty moment for the rest of time over and over. Now, do I want to add shame to this and repeat that moment of having shame after this infinitely? No. No. So instead, I recognize the mistake, I recognize the thing, and I take the next effective step. So I love that. A lot of us live in that one-two punch of mistake, quote unquote, and shame. But shame is so tremendously ineffective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I talk about this a lot, actually. It's It's the double whammy of like, having the feeling and then feeling something about that feeling. And usually how we feel about how we feel is the more damaging thing, Um, especially when how we feel about our original emotion is shame or rejection or, you know, blaming ourselves for not being being the highest version of, of ourselves in that moment, you know, like we're fucking human for God's sake. So... Yeah, love this. Love this discussion. I'm going to sidestep really quickly to do the segment Get Pregnant and Die. Don't have sex because you will get pregnant and die. Don't have sex in the missionary position. Don't have, don't have sex standing up. Just don't do it. Promise? And this is where I ask all my guests if they have an anecdote from their sex ed, you know, maybe how it failed you, maybe it was great, maybe there was a funny little story from school. Do you have something that springs to mind around your sex education that you'd like to share? Instantly. I instantly have a moment. (laughs) So I, I went to a private school, I think it was fifth grade, 
when we took our sex ed, it was a Christian school. And back in the mid nineties, we watched a video. God forbid the teacher have to talk about it. So the teacher pushes this video monitor out, plays it. And it's this Christian minister and he's interviewing someone and who he's interviewing is very interesting. He's interviewing a serial killer on death row the night before he is to die. And this particular serial killer strangled and dismembered many women. And of course, it's only fifth grade boys watching this, I might add, because we had been segmented into boys and girls. Mm-hmm. And so all the boys are watching this video and, and we're watching it for one key moment because it's all pointing to this. So he, he, he strangles and dismembers women. And this minister is asking him these questions. How'd you get here? How in the world did you let, cause you grew up in a good Christian home. You grew up in a, in a good in, environment and society. How in the world did you become a serial killer who was about to die on death row? And he looks at the camera and he says, one moment in my life, I looked at porn and I <laughs> masturbated to it. Now, every kid in that classroom suddenly knows his future because we've all seen porn at that point in time we've seen a clip or a cutout of a porn mag we've all masturbated at least once and we all know that we are going to die on death row because we have done this horrible thing (laughs) oh my god whoa i so I thought I knew where that was going um, because I've actually done an episode on on porn and porn addiction and, and yeah, the, my guest was talking about how the sort of surveys show that a lot of the serial killers were porn addicts. Um, so, yeah, exactly where I thought that was going. But that is wild that this, this minister or teacher, whoever, like showed fifth grade, that's young. This is terrifying. This is like scare tactics. Like, come on. Not surprising at all. But yeah, wow. What a perfect example of a get pregnant and die story. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I, I think that, um, I think those statistics are all very, very interesting. I think like 200,000 Americans right now categorize themselves as porn addicts. Um, I think that's really interesting. Um, I think the, 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 the way those studies are, um, assessed is very interesting. I think who pays for those studies is very interesting. Mm. Um, mm. and I think that our society's, um, fascination with making sure that forms of pleasure, particularly forms of pleasure available to men and boys is very interesting. Um, there is such a, a hullabaloo, uh, in the new age wokenistas of the world about, um, semen retention. And oh my God, every <laughs> men's worker that I know is retaining his semen so that they can have oozing orgasms in the grocery <laughs> store. You know, it's like the orgasm of life just juices from me as I'm talking to my lady friend. And it's like, Put it away. That's disgusting. A. And B, let's talk about this. Is that actually true? Does it actually do that? Well, okay. I mean, there's some studies that say yes and some studies that say no. But I think it's very interesting that around the turn of the century in the 1900s, white Protestant males were in particularly had their their foreskin cut away as a religious practice Mm 
but the truth was to curb them from masturbating. So I don't think it's a new thing in our culture to make sure boys don't waste their time self-pleasuring. I simply think we've changed the name of the game and made it a little tamer and said, hey, you'll be a better person if you don't. But I think our society is in general obsessed with making sure that people in general, but also as a man in this culture, I'm going to say men Mm -hmm. also, Mm -hmm. don't feel copious amounts of delight mm-hmm. god forbid mm-hmm. god forbid i know and as a woman it's exactly the same um yeah. it's yeah it's such a crime and that that made me think of a podcast episode i did around the sort of uh i think it was called the underbelly of the spiritual community and uh clitgasms aren't the devil and i've done a couple where we've you know i've i've had like ex tantrikas and people that were deep in that scene the kind of ashram scene um come on and talk about you know how fucked it actually is and it's yeah it's it's really fascinating i love talking about that and the um yeah the semen retention vibe the what's it uh no fap no 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 ejac i don't know anyway there's all these movements around it um and yeah another thing i wanted to mention that that i feel like lines up with where you were sort of what you were alluding to like the actual definition of porn addiction is like watching it like three times a month not much like not much you know and it's like "Eh, that's pretty that's pretty over the top (laughs) I don't know if that's like full-blown addiction there and it would be so different person to person so yeah I feel you it's nuanced and I think a lot of the research and the you know the catchphrases or the statistics are very much like extreme shock factor ignoring nuance you know which we're pretty used to at this point so um okay so I'd love to get stuck into some some stuff around relating long-term relationships in particular because um, I think, you know, really it's only after the honeymoon period blows over that things start to get, you know, relevant with what we're speaking about. Oh, not, not necessarily actually. But, yeah, I guess for my own curiosity, long-term relationships are in particular like where I want to focus uh, this. So in regards to relationships and shadow work, are they a good opportunity to work on our shadows and, and use our partner as a mirror to reflect these parts of ourselves that we don't like or haven't healed or that we could spend some time working on? Or should we try to be working on this stuff before we find ourselves in a relationship with all of the shadow stuff being triggered? You know, like, because some people are like, oh, I really have to work on myself first. Like, I'm not ready for a relationship. And then at other times, you know, I, I feel like both both is good. You don't want to leave it all until you're in a relationship when all your shit's coming up. But yeah, I'd love to get your take on this. Yes. And yes. Uh, (laughs) In short. But I think I, I think what I would like to say about it is I thought I was a great parent until I actually had kids. (laughs) Um, I thought I was a great lover until I actually made love to a woman. I think that, relationships are this funny thing where it is easier to work on our stuff when we're out of relationship. And it is almost always in relationship that our actual stuff comes out, Mm -hmm. right? It becomes Mm. the very backboard by which the things we didn't know that we didn't know 
we didn't know how to address. So whenever I hear, and I hear, you know, high profile authors make this statement, I was just listening to one very, very well regarded author, and she had just moved on to from her divorce and it had been traumatic and she had moved forward and she's now with another lover. And she said, you know, I did the work. I did the work. It was like, it was three months. She did the work, you know, and now she's healed and now she can be in relationship. And I just laughed. I thought, what workbook did you go through? I mean, like what, what 20 page workbook did you, did you journal through? That's, that's one, what a delightful thought that we can do the work and now we're ready. Well, we're never ready. It will yeah. always summon aspects of ourself that we simply did not know. Um, and then there we are. And that's really, I think, the beauty of relationships. It is not uh, if I'm ready or not. You're never ready. It is simply now that you, the, the real asshole has come out, now that the real, uh, real bitchy moment has erupted, now that these parts of ourselves that, oh my God, we've tried so hard to hide, now that the cat is out of the bag, now what? And the first thing we do is we, we look at them quizzically, will you reject me just like I, I want to reject myself? Mm. Yeah. And I think mm -hmm. one of the real great tasks and testimonies to love is we're afraid of love because we are quite sure that they will do the very thing that we do to ourselves almost all the time. Yeah. Mm. We're looking for them to confirm it, to tell us we aren't worthy, to tell us we aren't good enough, to tell us that, that we need to change after all. And so one of the really beautiful things that we can begin to do for our partners in relationship, especially long-term relationship, is to get very real and very serious and say, say to them that actually you are your own responsibility. I'm not going to fix you. I'm not going to rescue you, but I am going to be with you. Mm. Yeah. And part of that means mm. being with your shadows. Mm, beautiful. Yeah, I um I've been I've been with several partners in the past who uh I, I really shied away from using, you know, the relationship and my support and my reflections to work through their shadow and instead they really insisted that they've got to be alone to do it, to deal with their own shit before they're ready for a relationship, um, which, you know, sometimes I'm sure was true, but I was really, I was always so heartbroken because I was sure, you know, because I was ready to roll up my sleeves and get into it with them. I was sure that if they just, you know, if they just gave it a go, we'd be able to tackle it together, become closer in the process, grow together. But, you know, they always, and maybe this is a uh, a bit more common with men as well, that real like desire to like be the man they want to be and do it solo and not allow themselves to have the thing that they want until they feel like they've gotten there. Like it was almost as though they were like too ashamed of themselves and didn't want anyone else to see their shadow and they were punishing themselves by denying themselves the love and the support that I was offering. And I was mm -hmm. so devastated because I was like, but I'm sure that I can just see, I can see how it would all work if you just let me. But then I guess mm -hmm. that was me wanting to fix or wanting to hold space or, you know, kind of wanting my way um, and just being like, come on, just fucking 
get over yourself and do the work with me. Like, geez. <laughs> yeah. No, but what you're describing, I see it so much with men. And, you know, I remember years ago, it was early, early 2000s. And I think, I think Nintendo 64 had long come out. I think PlayStation <laughs> had just come out. And there was um, a dearth of articles about the impact of video games, particularly on boys. And I remember mm. reading um, an article. I think it actually, I remember it was 1999, reading an article about the impact of chronic video game use. So think then, I mean, those are <laughs> like, that's nothing compared to what we have today. Yeah. But 1999, this article is talking about the impact and it said, one of the things that chronic video game use is teaching our boys is to hide their failures in aloneness, to simply experience defeat, and rather than be surrounded by their peers, to cheer them on or to challenge them to change. Instead, they sulk in silence and tend to their own wounds. And I really think that we're dealing with a generation of men, particularly we're looking at at 40s on down, who have been raised in video game culture, which has taught an already problematized population, mm -hmm. meaning men in general, to hide, to obscure our right. shame, to wrap ourselves in silence. I, I literally think you're dealing with a toolkit that is is so underdeveloped to the point of not even knowing how to access it. Mm. Yeah, that's really heartbreaking. Yeah, and I think like something that I feel as though I've been observing that's really, really uh, impacted this is like. I guess the the culture of dating since dating apps um, and since technology and, and all of it, I've just noticed like a real distinct lack of resiliency in a lot of like relationships that are happening. And I think it's like possibly some of that effort, adverse, disposable attitude towards partners like really does come from this like, you know, it's like dating app culture, which is all too easy to just discard one match and pick up another as soon as things don't feel easy or exciting anymore. And maybe it's that we're not taught how to commit and weather the different seasons and the rocky patches or the hardships that are inevitable in life, but definitely inevitable in relationship. Um, and I like, I have a really big wound around abandonment and a fear that my partner will leave me if things get tough and stay tough for too long. So it's exactly what you were saying. Like we're afraid that our partners are going to judge us on the same stuff we judge ourselves on and deem us unworthy, unlovable, you know, rotten at the core is a phrase that I, I often use. It's like that's, that's, that's actually how I feel underneath it all. I feel like from when I was young and I had an abusive father, like I feel like my core wounding is that I am rotten at the the core and I'm unlovable and so um and I'm I'm really prone to like sticking it out being really committed rolling up my sleeves working on the relationship whereas I think a lot of people that I've come across have this attitude that relationships are just supposed to be easy breezy cover girl all the time and if there's challenges or something that's not perfect for a while oh like that's a sign that it's not right you know I can just like get out of here and find a Green, greener grass somewhere else you know and like so averse to facing the shadow and doing the work are these people that 
they'll abandon shit before they've given it a proper chance, or at least that's how I see it. And that's my fear is that people are going to abandon ship, abandon me and the relationship before they give it a proper chance because we're all so averse to like, you know, putting in effort, doing the work, looking at our own shadows. Um, and so that's like, yeah, that's that's something that really contributes to my fear of abandonment um, and this belief that like if someone sees too much of my shadow side, it'll be too heavy for them. Um, and then conversely, like I, I've also noticed there's this type of person who I've also definitely been in the past who clings to a relationship way longer than they should because of like, you know, some sunk cost fallacy or belief yes. that, you know, no matter how tough it gets, how shitty it makes them feel, how terrible this person treats them, they've just got to stick it out and make it work because, yeah, relationships do take work and like I've invested all this time in this person and I can fix it and I can save it and, you know, so like how do we find a healthy balance and how do we know if we're falling into one of these categories in, in a way yeah. that's not sustainable or helpful? Well, I do think that you're talking about cultural drift in such a, a great way that, that, you know, whether it's the dating apps or, or just simply the increasing population. I mean, 7.8 billion people, there is someone better for you statistically mm. than the person you're in relationship with. And if they wrong you, well, just discard them and go find another person. I mean, honestly, I think we're all living in the great awareness that we live in the marketplace and yeah. that, that we are disposable goods to some extent. That's not just romance. I mean, mm -hmm. that's, that's jobs. That's, that's mm -hmm. every aspect, right? Why work on redeeming someone when you can simply go find someone else without a history, um. right? I think that we've seen, sadly, from a storytelling arc, the end of the redemption arc. We used to talk a lot about redemption. I just don't think we're that interested in it as a culture anymore. I think we're much more interested in stories about freshly minted, new, shiny things. Things that have the buttons and the the buzzings and the bells and the whistles. Um, I think that's much more what we're interested in. I think that's very unfortunate for many of us who who also long for and know that we were made for something deeper than that. So I, I think that for one thing, I would say that givers should find givers. People who are people who are used to to giving a lot in relationship should find other people who give a lot in relationship. That's one of the really, really great pro tips, right? That's one of the ways you avoid ending up with someone who's going to check out if you no longer check off the boxes, right? You want to be with people who, who aren't interested in checking off the boxes. They're interested in outgrowing the boxes, right? And that's a, that's a basic aspect. And I think that dating app culture is very interested in making sure that you've got all the boxes checked. And if that mm -hmm. changes, if I notice uh, a disturbance, then I'm out. Um, and I think that's tremendously unfortunate. But you, you brought up this other side, which I think is really interesting, which is sometimes we actually have to accept that our desire to fix a relationship is actually an inability to accept that we're with the wrong person or we're in the wrong relationship. And you'll have people who are like relationship fixer junkies, 
It's like they've been doing everything they can for the last 73 years to hold it together. <laughs> They're white knuckling it, you know, through it all. Yeah. Um, what I would say is don't expect something from your partner that they don't have the capacity to give. And at some point in time, you may have to recognize that you keep asking your partner to change, but that simply means you're with the wrong person. If you are always asking your partner to evolve beyond who they are, you may not actually accept who they are. You may be the person who's not accepting them, right? Yeah. And that's probably a tough pill to swallow. So I think it, it, it's less of a discernment point, but notice like what you constantly run into. If you constantly are someone who, when you see the, the red flags, you're out, you're not willing to give anything, maybe challenge that. <laughs> maybe know that you actually have a... A, a role within this. You know, I think that it gets to, to the really great topic of ambiguity in relationships, not just ambiguity, but ambivalence, right? You have a lot of people who are like, I don't know, should I go? You know, there, it's just the feeling is gone. And it's like, well, what is that? Well, oftentimes it's a lack of recognition that they have contributed to this feeling and that they're pulling away is part of what is creating the feeling that they hate. <laughs> mm. And so the first thing you can do is recognize your role within it. Recognize that you actually are a tremendous power within your relationship and you can give. Not by demanding that your partner change, but by actually being the change that you wish. So I can't get angry that my partner isn't holding me or hugging me or running to me or embracing me. I've done that before. I, I, I've been in a marriage where one of my great tactics was to complain. Oh my God. It was like complaint, complaint, complaint. I would complain all day. Why aren't you like this? Why aren't you like that? Why aren't you like that? You know what? It doesn't get you very far. <laughs> and one of the lessons that I learned was not to complain, but to actually um, stand in that gap and begin to be the change. So that would look like then me going over and holding them, not expecting them to know that's what I wanted, but me simply doing that for them. And then I think the second piece is if you're constantly demanding that your partner change, that you actually begin to ask the question, am I with the right person? Yeah. Mm, yeah. It, it really is both sides. Excuse the interruption, my loves, but I'm shamelessly seeking reviews and five-star ratings for the potty because as I'm sure you've noticed by now, it's pretty fab. And the more people who get to hear it, the more people it can help. Reviews and ratings help me curry favor with the algorithmic gods and get suggested to other listeners to check out. Plus, they make me feel really good and appreciated as I continue to pour my heart and soul into creating this baby for you. And I promise I don't maz over them or anything. I mostly just tuck them away for a rainy day when I'm filled with self-doubt and existential dread about being self-employed, which is fairly frequently. <laughs> so you see, leaving a review really does make a difference and it's an easy little act of support that you can take in just a minute or two by either going to Spotify and leaving five stars for the show or writing a written review and leaving five stars over on Apple Podcasts. Choose your poison, or if you're a real overachiever, you could do both. Whoa now. If you are writing a review, though, just be sure to only use G-rated words, because despite the fact that this is a podcast about sexuality, words like sex can be censored and your review won't actually show up. Lame. Anyway, oh, 
oh, what was that? Oh, you're going to go do it right now while I wait. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great idea. May as well just quickly click that five-star button before we get on with it and, you know, like forget about it and get on with your day. Um, um, oh, I'm hearing them roll in. I'm hearing those five stars. <laughs> oh my God, I make myself cringe. Anyway, uh, thank you much, Lee. You're a total gem and I'll let you get back to the episode now. So I want to dig a bit more into uh, doing the work in relationship and and how we can utilize, you know, shadow work and and how we know when because something something that has been coming up with people around me lately and even in my own relationship is um you know things have been tough for a long time circumstantially and and i feel like sometimes then people have the tendency to start thinking like oh why is this so hard it's been hard for a long time does that mean it's not it's not right or like do we just need a persist and keep working on this um and I really reject the whole like relationships should be easy they shouldn't take work because I just think that that's like so misguided and it's just this romanticized super glorified you know um fairy tale honeymoon period kind of idea of relationships which is not a fucking thing it doesn't last especially once you have children like come on guys let's be realistic like relationships are going to take work and I believe that not always but a lot of the time like if we were actually prepared to do the work and if we really do have that deep love for one another and and we just work better more at understanding one another um we'll come out the other side of these periods of intense work and and shadow work and have more connection, more depth to the relationship. We'll understand one another and how to traverse different territories with one another better. Um, I think there's so much value in doing the work in relationship and there's nothing quite like a long-term relationship to bring up every bit of shit. You know, <laughs> shit you didn't know was there. You, can, Of course, you can work on yourself before getting into a relationship, but there's certain things that you really cannot do until you're actually in a relationship. Um, and I think that's really valuable and not necessarily a sign that the relationship's doomed or not right. So, like, can you chat a little bit about that? Like, you know, you have four kids and a wife, like, Surely you guys aren't just, you know, easy breezy cover girl all the time. And surely there's been times when you may have questioned like, fuck, is it, why is it this hard? Like, do we give up or do we just, do we go deeper, you know? Yeah. Um, I think it's a great question. And, and honestly, this is one of the areas that sometimes my partner, and I get in trouble around. And because we talk so practically about love, because we believe it so practically, we believe that love is so damned practical. The truth is that sometimes we minimize an aspect of our relationship that we almost um, forget, which is this deeply mystical union that exists between the two of us and has literally almost since the day we met. Now, we have a podcast out called Love Like Hell, which mm -hmm. talks about some of the difficult places of our relationship. We've been through it. Infidelity, miscarriages, multiple ones, 
um, bankruptcy, foreclosure, loss of career, loss of reputation, loss of communities. Um, we've been through so many things and not just like all in one season, but at different seasons when you thought you were through things. Now, here's the thing. There's only been in this very, very long track. There's only been, I think really once where we looked at one another and said, should we throw in the towel? And we meant it as a question, not an accusation. And both of our very quick response was, hell no. Um, we've always had this sense of peace in the midst of the storm. Mm. We've always enjoyed one another. I remember a particular dark moment. It was dark. Uh, and I mean that. There were riots in our city that we were living in at the time. There were you know, fires, the, the, the local forests were on fire. The, the sky was bleak and black and charred. And that mirrored our internal state. We were feeling fragmented. We were feeling separate. And I can remember saying to her, this isn't how our story ends. Let's keep going. And I knew I just knew. So I think that there's this really interesting thing. And when I've talked to people who are lovers, like deep lovers, that is a recognition. There is like a recognition in one another. What I would say is there's a delightedness in one another. Even when we can't stand each other, we still crack each other up. My God. It's like, uh, uh, I, I think that, that is an aspect of deep souls union. Mm-hmm. Sometimes one of the problems with lovers is they believe it's all work. They literally believe that love is, uh, that love is a schoolhouse where they need to learn a lesson or love mm-hmm. is a hospital where they need to get, you know, I don't know, cut open. And so they're constantly doing that. No, no, no. Love should be a home. Love should be a home where you come to rest, mm-hmm. where all of life begins to play out and happen from inside uh, this, this wonderfully secure boundary. That is the aspect of love. And unfortunately, I think some of us replace that with hard work and effort. I, I, you know, whenever a couple tells me, yeah, three weeks in and we got into a real good tiff, man, it was like, but you know what? We're really working on it. We're, we're, we're people who really believe in the value of constant evolution. I'm like, dude, three weeks in, you need to get out. <laughs> if it's miserable three weeks in, find a new love. So that's when I would say, you know, when you, when you see red flags early, like very early on, if it's miserable early on, you can't misery your way into delight. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I, I would say use those things early on, use your discernment tools early on. And then later in the game, use your resiliency. Mm. Mm. And I mean, if you haven't even had a really luscious honeymoon period, what's going to keep you going through the difficulties further down the track? If three weeks in, you were already having spats, you know, like that's, yeah, no good. Yes. I, 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 I think that, and I feel like the evidence is in, like, I've got some, some great friends (laughs) and I just, I think about them. They're miserable. I mean, like God, we named our Mm -hmm. podcast love like hell, but it's kind of funny because our love hasn't been like hell, but, but you know, Mm -hmm. I think if you start miserably, you're going to end pretty miserably. On the other hand, if you start with this place of inner security, it doesn't matter what the externals are. 
you're going to be fine. You are. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't run its course. It may. You know, part of life is death. And part of love is endings. Love ends. I am not one of those pie in the sky people who just says, oh, my God, we're going to love each other for the next 73 lifetimes. You know, it's like, okay, maybe, but I'm probably not going to know your name then. So either way, either way, it's an ending. You know, love ends. Every relationship ends one way or the other, death or divorce. It would be better if we started every relationship with the acknowledgement that this ends. Yeah, this ends one way or the other. Yeah, I feel like sometimes people are so afraid of ending something or feeling as though they failed at the relationship that they'll stay in it even once it's, you know, completely miserable. And there's also people that are so addicted to drama and they and they have so much, I mean, it's their baseline, it's their it's normal for them that if they do find themselves three weeks in and there's already drama and all of these red flags popping up, they don't they don't see those as red flags because that has been their baseline for so long and they are they are kind of addicted to the drama and also something I can't stand, um, which I hear a lot. People are so addicted to this fiery, crazy sex and oh my god, it was amazing, so dramatic. And it's like outside the bedroom. They're fighting all the time. It's like makeup and breakup sex constantly. They're in this drama cycle with one another and they're feeding into one another's toxic patterns. But the sex is so fiery and so intense that they become addicted to that like chemically and emotionally. And they mistake that for a deep, a deep uh, connection. And, you know, even the fact that we're calling it chemistry, it's like, cool. Like, do you want to be run by your chemistry though? Like so much so that you're like, you're in a relationship that doesn't actually meet any of your needs. It just keeps you in a drama cycle and it keeps you hooked on this thing that you're addicted to. It's, it's, yeah, it's a really big pitfall that I see a lot of people, um, you know, people traversing that path where they're, they're mistaking chemistry and fire and sexual spark for, um, for compatibility and for deep love and connection and intimacy. Um, so yeah, super interesting hearing you speak on that and and I think like finding a balance between sure like things are going to be tough and we're going to have to you know wade through some muck and some mire sometimes but interspersing that with fun and play and giggles and deep connection like I I could not I could not stay in a relationship that was hard work all the time and that didn't have moments of play and and laughter and silliness and just like you know, like it's it's so funny. Like my partner and I have been going through it. Like not mm. not as a as a couple so much, but like our circumstances for you know since lockdown first started in in Melbourne and moved into state and we've had massive financial strains and all of these. It's basically been a series of unfortunate events, and we feel like we're in a sitcom. And we're at like hot messes all of the fucking time. We're just like, what is going on? But we still have so many moments. Like one minute I'll be melting. We take turns having a meltdown and supporting the other person. And we kind of seamlessly switch roles, like who's having a meltdown today and who's holding space and reassuring the other person because it's easier to do it for someone else than yourself. And then next minute we're just like having the funniest giggle about something ridiculous and we're playing. And then we're like, oh, 
we're okay. Things can't be too bad if we're, we've gone from that. You know, my partner was saying yesterday, I feel like we've got bipolar because we're just swinging and that's not going to be forever. This is just where we're at at the moment and it's temporary, but it is super interesting chatting about this. And, um, my, my, uh, inner knowing is very certain that like we're solid, we're good even amongst all the shit when we're like literally the most overwhelmed and stressed we've ever been, we still giggle a lot. We still do really cute romantic things for each other. We still, you know, we still take the time to make the other person feel seen and heard and, and, and give them a laugh, you know, like, and if we weren't managing to do that, it would be completely, I couldn't handle it. Neither of us could handle it, but because we've got that balance, I think that's what, yeah, that's what, that's what makes it sustainable. Yeah. You know, I, I would just, I would say here that I think there are three elements in love or relationship that are of equal importance. Unfortunately, they get emphasized by different teachers or different uh, students who are eager to to emphasize the one that brings them the most enjoyment or that they're, <laughs> they find easiest, but I think they're all equally important and you really have to have to have them all to have a successful relationship. I do believe that chemistry is important. I mean, there were a lot of bands in the 1960s in, in Liverpool, England who practiced endlessly around the hour, but they weren't the Beatles, you know, like there's something magic that happened when George and Paul and when they showed up into the room, they became something. The four of them together had chemistry. Mm. Chemistry is damned important. It really is. That's, mm. that's Dore. I'll, I'll tell you, compatibility is the second thing. You have to have mm. someone who is compatible with your values, with your goals, with your vision of the world. Now, here's the thing. A lot of people go through life saying, hey, who's going with me? Who's going with me? Who's going with me? Wrong question. Instead, first ask, where am I going? Mm. Then ask, who's going with me? So know your values. Know your, your vision for the world. Then ask, hey, who else is going there? Who wants to go with me? So compatibility mm. with vision and values. And then the third thing is commitment. Being able to weather mm. a storm being in it for the stretch. I think that those are actually the the three things and you really can't substitute one for the other. You'll rely mm. on one of them more than the other at a different phase in your long-term relating. Certainly, there are mm. times when you'll rely on commitment. You know, you you mentioned that thing about sex and makeup sex. There was a whole season in my partner in my life where the only thing we had going for us was we loved to fuck each other. Like, honestly, we could barely talk to each other. We could barely talk through our problems, but we could get into the same room and, and have the most fiery, intense, beautiful, dirty, filthy, glorious, sacred sex. <laughs> and then we would look at each other and say, God, I love you. Um, and that was actually what kept us through it. There are times when chemistry will keep you together. That's good too. There are times when commitment or shared compatibility, when the other things fade, but it all should even out in the end.
Mm, mm, mm. Totally. Love that. And that's such a practical, you know, three things. Here they are. Let's look at this. Let's reflect on our own relationships and go, all right, like, do we have those things? Like, I think that's so helpful because just to clarify, I'm, I'm not uh, downplaying the importance of chemistry. It's, it's more like in the very early stages of courtship yes. when it's, it's almost like it's almost hardly chemistry and just more trauma patterns playing out. Um, oh. That bit relying on the chemistry in the early stages when none of those other components are there, that's what I have an issue with, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that addiction to that breach and repair cycle is so common. We get addicted to the payoff mm -hmm. that comes from those repairs mm -hmm. sometimes. And, mm -hmm. and of course, if you're addicted to the payoff of repair, you get really good at creating breaches. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Could do a whole podcast episode on that, actually. Great idea. <laughs> uh, so, before we wrap up, um, I'd love to get a TMI story. So this segment, to give you a little rundown um, on the brief, we I, I kind of disagree with the whole like too much information. I think this is like a way that uh, we not always, I mean, time and a place, of course, um, but it is it is a way that sometimes things are um, kept kept in the shadows or behind closed doors and we don't talk about all the things that are disgusting or gross or shameful or taboo or stigmatized. I think that's bullshit. This podcast, you know, is is basically trying to buck that system. And I, I've rebranded TMI instead of too much information as too much inspiration because I find it really inspiring when we actually talk about the things that no one's talking about or the the bodily experiences or the sexual bloopers or the, you know, vulnerable emotional processes that we go through and usually don't share because people would be like, oh, don't talk about that. Like, I don't want to, too much. Like, don't overshare right now. And, you know, of course, like, I think it's Brene Brown who talks about how vulnerability can be weaponized and used as a tool. But, um, and I want to say people aren't expected to share a story if it's all, it's also just as inspirational if you go, you know what? I don't actually feel like sharing a, a TMI story on this podcast with someone I don't know before. I haven't met before. Um, but this is a, a space where you are free to share a TMI story, um, to my audience if something springs to mind. Hey, me again. If you'd like to support the potty and you've already given it five stars on whatever platform you're listening on, I want to mention that you can buy some really dope merch from the website and get yourself a labia lounge tote, tea, togs. Yep, you heard that right. I even have labia lounge bathers or a cute fanny pack if that'd blow your hair back. So uh, if fashion isn't your passion, though, you can donate to my Buy Me A Coffee donation page, which is actually called Buy Me A Soy Chai Latte because... I'll be the first to admit, I'm a bit of a Melbourne cafe tosser like that. And yes, that is my coffee order. <laughs> you can do a once-off donation or an ongoing membership and sponsor me for as little as three fat ones a month. And I also have a Sunroom profile over on the Sunroom app, as I've mentioned. And I also offer one-on-one -on -one coaching and online courses that'll help you level up your sex life and relationship with yourself and others in a really big way. 
So every bit helps because it ain't cheap to put out a sweet podcast uh, into the world every week out of my own pocket. So I will be undyingly grateful if you support me and my biz financially in any of these ways. And if you like, I'll even give you a mental BJ with my mind from the lounge itself. Saucy. And um, I'll pop the links in the show notes. Thank you. Later. There was this moment um, when I was caught between two lovers. And I mean that literally. I was having a fantastic threesome with two (laughs) lovers. And... You know, what makes a good threesome is that they're both as into each other as they are into you. Now, I've had some bad threesomes, and the qualifier, I would say, of a bad threesome is when they aren't into each other, they can barely stand each other, and they're only interested in you. It's very hard to be the center of attention. A lot of pressure on you. It's much better if you distribute the weight between the three parties there. So I've got to say that this was a particularly wonderful threesome. I, I cared for both of them. I was really enjoying it. And then something went wrong. One of them began to have a, a some kind of interesting emotional response. And so we pause in the middle. And of course, there's a lot of caretaking that can happen in any kind of sexual experience, but especially some that's vulnerable like that. It was new in this case, hadn't happened before. Mm. So then, then we're kind of walking through, taking care. And, um, and, you know, the, the situation devolved and one, one lover left the room and, and I'm sitting there torn now, two separate rooms two separate women and I don't know what to do because I care for both of them and I keep on going back and forth and I think of this moment and it was such a such a vivid visual of of being caught and I would go and I would stabilize one lover and we uh, like talk about it and get it just so, and and she'd be fine. Then I would hear sobs in the next room. I'd go and I'd tend to the other. This happens to like four in the morning, where I'm shuttling oh. back and forth between these two rooms, and you know, I I I look back on that with a degree of amusement, a degree of sadness, and uh, a degree of of just like throwing up my my hands and saying, such is the confusing positions that we put ourselves in in life. Yeah. And I, I love this image of me caretaking, going back and forth. And I think that was the name of the game in that moment for me, trying to take care of everyone in the room. Meanwhile, I think I was actually the one who was being neglected in that moment. Wow. That's an amazing story. It's so interesting. You definitely got more than you bargained for there. So much to navigate. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. (laughs) You know, I, for a long time, I, I, I jokingly said that I never had a threesome that I liked and, and I meant because it was like, there was always something that went wrong. There was always some uncontrollable aspect. And I think nobody tells you that nobody tells Mm -hmm. you that these very fantastical experiences that you imagine are going to be great are actually very real world experiences (laughs) with very real people who are all very Mm -hmm. flesh and blood and don't know how to do this certain move and haven't tried this kind of yoga pose before. And, and we're all kind of in it together. Nobody explains that. 
Yeah, totally. And it's not, it's like not surprising that those situations are so fraught. Um, you know, it's especially when there's, emotions involved and you know one another prior or there might be an existing relationship like primary partner involved with maybe a play a play pal or like far out it's just um it's advanced shit to navigate you know it's not all just like a porno where you're all strangers and you rock up in one room and it's purely physical like that's it's never able to be purely physical because we're humans and these situations can be triggering so really cool that you're you know acknowledging that because i think people really like glorify and pedestalize the threesome like it's so sexy and and it's sometimes not that sexy (laughs) you know i uh I think it's the, I I think I read that it's at least in the top five and if not the top three fantasies for both men and women to have a threesome. And I think that's beautiful. I think one of the things that we love so much about it is we want, we're attached to this idea of moreness. Like we live in a Mm -hmm. world where we can have more. And so we want more, right? And I'm a fan of that. More hands, more (laughs) bodies, more skin. That feels great. Like that's wonderful. But it does get into that problematic territory of dealing with other humans who you can't control in your own self, which we find that altogether too often we can't control as well. Mm. Mm. I know. And, you know, so many people find find sex a really fraught and challenging and triggering territory, even just with one other person. You know, that is why I'm in the job. We are all, we all have shit around our sexuality, unfortunately, because of the culture that we've sort of grown up in. And so, you know, of course, things are going to get a little bit more complicated and tricky to traverse when there's an additional person involved. And like so many of us have so much existing trauma when it comes to sex. So, yeah, yeah it's definitely, it's advanced in my opinion. <laughs> I, I would say, and I've, I've said to so many of the people I've talked to across the years, a pro tip have all of the really necessary and unsexy conversations beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You have to have. And nobody says that. Everyone wants to be totally liquored up and and completely, you know, inebriated. And then we'll find our way into a room. And God, that just makes for the worst outcomes possible. Absolutely. I'm always, yeah, always saying like have the conversations outside the bedroom about what's going to happen inside the bedroom before you take your clothes off. It's just like, it's, it's 101, you know? Um, yeah. Amazing. Oh, well, thank you so much. This has been just, oh, such a juicy, meaty chat. I've loved every second of it. And I just want to give you an opportunity before we jump off to add any parting words of wisdom, advice for listeners, maybe give give your current offerings a plug, anything you want to leave us with. Yeah. Well, you can certainly find me over at Instagram, uh, Rainier Wild. You can find me at my website, uh, rainierwild.com. I have links to all of the relevant programs or courses that I'm offering. I'm really excited about the writing workshops that I'm offering on a monthly basis um, these days, really tapping into our ability to create worlds with our words, the ability mm. to shape and design our life by using our words. And we take various authors, various 
um, characters and, and works. And we look at them, but we look at them from the sense of how can I begin to actually uh, take on my world and create myself anew through this. So it's a really exciting thing. I love that. And you can find out out those um, on the website. Mm-hmm. Also doing a, a series with my partner. We're going to be doing an ongoing series of workshops. The first one's called Trust Again. Um, and that's all about how to open up your heart, even if you've been hurt, especially if you've mm-hmm. been wounded. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, that's a beautiful, beautiful offering that I'm excited to invite a number of people into. Yeah. Oh, awesome. So important that one. I get that I get that question a lot. Like, you know, my partner was unfaithful or trust was broken or I'm hurt by this. And like, how do we move forward from here? So yeah, that's really cool. Oh, amazing. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Freya. This was really wonderful. See you later, everyone. And that's it, darling hearts. Thank you for stopping by the Labia Lounge. Your bum groove in the couch will be right where you left it, just waiting for you to sink back in for some more double L action next time. And in the meantime, if you'd be a dear and subscribe, share this episode, or leave a review on iTunes, then you can pat yourself on the snatch because that, my dear, is a downright act of sex-positive feminist activism. And you'd be supporting my vision to educate, empower, demystify, and destigmatize with this here podcast. Also, I'm always open to feedback, topic ideas that you'd love to hear covered, or guest suggestions. So feel free to get in touch via my website at freyagraph.com or say hey over on Insta. My handle is Freya underscore graph underscore YMT, and I seriously hope you're following me on there because damn, we have fun. We have fun. Anyway, later labial legends. I'll see you next time.